for example, we would have some of our um, athletes would do a, a 40K session in the morning of walking and then they'd walk a 10K session in the afternoon. And that kind of a training volume would mean that it doesn't matter what you ate between the session in the morning and the session in the afternoon, the one in the afternoon was always low carbohydrate availability just because there's not the chance to replace glycogen in that time frame when you've done such a heavy session in the morning. So it, it might be that even our high carbohydrate availability diet was actually periodised because of the way the athletes trained. That triathlon show. 236. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and on today's episode I interview Professor Louise Burke, who is the Head of Sports Nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sport, or the AIS. Through her career, Louise has worked both practically with applied nutrition science, as well as uh, deep in the academic world. So she has a great perspective on both ends of the spectrum. And in recent years, much of her research has been focused on investigating the effects of low-carbohydrate diets, high-carbohydrate diets, and periodized carbohydrates, uh, diets or dietary interventions, I should say, uh, on endurance performance. And uh, this research is the topic of today's uh, discussion. We'll get right into this interview after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration make electrolyte products that uh, you can match to how you sweat. And in particular, if you have a lower sodium concentration in your sweat, then you don't need to replace as much electrolytes. But if you are somebody who loses a lot of sodium in your sweat, then you may need a stronger electrolyte supplement than most typical sports drinks and even electrolyte supplements would provide. And that is where some of the stronger concentrations of precision hydration products come into play. And that is what I personally use because I do lose a lot of uh, sodium in my sweat. Uh, also, I want to point out that Precision Hydration have a very active blog and uh, a great newsletter. So I really recommend checking both of those resources out and potentially subscribing to the newsletter if you're interested. They have tons of great articles that they post through the newsletter, including things like how a different pro athletes that they collaborate with and sponsor, how they are training. So you can get some insight into specific training programs and so on, which uh, are among my favorite articles that I read through Precision Hydration. Either way, you can get 15% off your products with the discount code DEATTRAFLONSHOW15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, prescription glasses, and sunglasses. And recently, Roka has launched two amazing new wetsuits. We had uh, a couple of months ago the Maverick MX, their max buoyancy wetsuit. And now just a week or so ago, two weeks ago perhaps, their new and revised version of the flagship model, the Maverick X2, uh, was brought to market. So go and read about those on the Roka website if you are on the hunt for a wetsuit. And they've also recently released a new Matador sunglasses, which uh, look really slick and have all 
all of the uh, design and the engineering uh, perks that Troka eyewear typically has. Check those out and you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code that you can find on roca.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Louise Burke. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Louise. How are you doing today? Great, thank you. Pleased to be here. It's uh, nice to have you. Why don't you start by telling the listeners a bit more about yourself, what you do and uh, your background? Right. Well, I'm a sports dietitian and I've just come up for 30 years of work at the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, I was head of sports nutrition when we had a sports nutrition program, but um, the AIS restructured nearly two years ago and the, all the science departments are now um, no longer. So I have a, a, a new role. I'm technically called the Chief of Nutrition Strategy, which is um, mostly for my own amusement, but um, I'm still able to do quite a bit of um, research and delivering education resources, although I'm not working day-to-day with athletes anymore because that's not a um, role of the AIS any longer. Um, but prior to that, the um, other 28 years of the 30 was spent leading a department where we were looking after the servicing of the whole range of elite athlete programs and involved a whole range of activities from counselling to education resources to running websites and doing applied research to um, get the evidence base. And it was a bit of everything. And along the way, I sort of developed some key interests, I think, around supplements and around um, applied research, particularly to do with some um, substrate utilisation and performance during exercise and um, ways in which we can manipulate both energy and carbohydrate availability with effects on performance and, and health. Great. Yeah, so it's, it's been a mix of uh, like doing a lot both on the practical side and the applied side of things as well as the the research and uh, academic side one of the that's right w- one of the really famous studies or groups of studies uh, i guess that you have done and published and are still publishing is uh, the so-called supernova so uh, can you talk a bit more about that particular study and the different research questions you are trying to uh, to answer in that study and how you have gone about doing so Sure. So perhaps we should start with just the um, the principle of the studies because this was a, a new area of research that we got into. And it was the idea of embedding a research project into a training camp with elite athletes. So um, we, we worked first with um, the, the elite race walking community because I already had a, a good connection there with one of our athletes, um, Jared Talent and coach Brent Balance. And so through um, the work that I was doing with them, we were able to entice a a group of international race walkers to come to the AIS. And we started with a a small group but eventually have built up to being able to work with, you know, 30 athletes at the one time, which is kind of chaotic. But the whole idea is that um, when you've got them there embedded in a training camp um, and have them involved as collaborators on the research project, we're able to both give them a great experience around training and learning from each other, but we've found that it's um, through their generosity and, and commitment, 
were able to collect some really great data and particularly to be able to interrogate things around performance in a way that's, you know, really applied in real life. We can hold races or have them as part of the um, research camps do real-life races. So um, when we're trying to measure performance, it's, it's much better if you can have it real life where they're doing a, a race and there's the usual incentives around prize money and PBs and selection for um, international races as part of the mix. But because we were able at the AIS to have so much control over the training and the, the food they eat during that period, we can blend the best sort of science with the best sort of practical outcomes and have confidence that what we see in terms of performance changes is, is, is a real outcome because our athletes are so invested in finding out for themselves, but they're also um, doing it in real life. So it's been a great experience to work with athletes like this to, to try and do research that's both meaningful but has some rigour attached to it. And this is a model we've started with the Supernova series with the race walkers, but we're also doing it with um, other groups of athletes and, and different other themes. The, um, the main themes we've been working with the race walkers, and we're up to um, Supernova 6 planning, um, is looking at different ways in which we can manipulate either carbohydrate or fat utilisation um, during training support and then performance. And more recently, we've moved into manipulating energy availability as well. So in the early stages, we were looking at um, whether periodising carbohydrate availability in training would give any better benefits to um, a training output and then performance than being um, following a high carbohydrate availability um, approach the whole time. And we also managed to um, put the keto diet into the mix because that's the extreme case of, of um, periodising carbohydrate availability, if you like, that you've you've removed it. And so in our early studies, we were comparing having high carbohydrate availability all the time or having no carbohydrate availability all the time or that mix of um, some sessions being done with high and some sessions being done with low. So, so let's let's talk about the results that you found in that particular study. What what did you find? Um, so, yeah, first two studies where we looked at um, those three different interventions and and had a performance measure before and after three weeks of very rigorous um, exposure to the diets. We found that the carbohydrate availability was the best for performance and. Um, strangely enough, the high-carbohydrate availability diet was probably even better than having the periodised approach, even though um, as scientists we were thinking that the um, the way forward was to go with the periodisation. But we found that both carbohydrate approaches were better than the, the ketogenic diet. In fact, we've um, had very robust, um, repeatable outcomes that in our hands at least show that the ketogenic diet impairs performance of higher intensity endurance um, sport and that it was um, in, in our hands explainable by remembering that the oxygen cost of burning fat to produce ATP is, is higher than um, using carbohydrate as an oxidative fuel and so that's not going to be a problem for an athlete when they're working at 
you know, 60, 70% of VO2 max. But once you start getting into much higher intensity areas, sort of the 75 to 85% of VO2 max, which is what elite athletes will be performing at when they're doing marathons or portions of um, cycle races or triathlons or other longer endurance events, when they get into those territories, it probably becomes an issue that the oxygen supply is the limiting factor rather than the substrate. So um, even though you can make the muscle better able to burn fat, if you can't get enough oxygen to the to the muscle to be able to do that, then that may be the limitation to performance. And how, long was, how, how long was the, the race that they did to measure performance? Uh, yes, how- so we looked. We looked at um, a 10,000-metre track race, which is a, an event that's about 40 minutes in, in race walking terms, and we chose that because we wanted to have some sort of a race that athletes could perform at maximally um, three weeks apart or three and a half weeks apart. Um, and so you can't get an, an athlete doing two marathons, for example, um, over that, that sort of distance you can't in three weeks expect them to be able to back up and do a, a performance that's that's maximal, um, both physiologically but also psychologically. But the 10,000-metre race was something that was um, within their grasp and the kind of speeds that they're working at in that race are, are similar to the 20K event, which is on the Olympic program. So we felt that that was a, a good test of performance and even though it's not a glycogen-limited event, um, it's still working in the intensity domains that are important for um, athletes. As I said before, it's um, not always just what happens for the duration of the event, but the critical moments of the event where athletes need to be able to break away or sprint to a line. Uh, they're, the, they're the critical events that might determine success outcomes. And so even though you might say that the average speed or intensity of a, of a race is, is a bit lower than that, if your athlete can't get to the finish line first or have that another gear to be able to um to bring home the race, then then that may be the limiting factor to their success. Sure. Um, yeah. Sorry, we're we're going to go, go on with with some point. Yes. Yeah, so um yeah, so we we, we chose the ten thousand meter ten thousand um, meter track race. And it was a it was a real life event. It was a an IAAF sanctioned event, and we had the race judges and electronic timing and prize money and all the, the things that would make that um, normal for these athletes. They were, um, you know, they, so they were trying to get PBs and, and to um, to get all the usual incentives from those events. So we did that before and after the um, the first study and, and in the second study as well. But um, it just happened that because we had all the athletes in Australia for the um, the first part of the season to do the study, many of them stayed around for a couple of weeks and then competed in our 20K National Race Walking Championships. And so even though that wasn't part of the protocol for the first study, um, we, we had a lot of people observing what happened to that race outcome. And so that sort of formed part of the um the question for the second study because there'd been a lot of Twitter and um, social media interaction around some of the um, athletes who'd been in the first study who had a breakthrough performance when they went to the 20K event afterwards. And so it was felt that maybe the fact that they had had the experience with the ketogenic diet 
in the background might have been part of why they had a great success in the race that was um, three weeks after the event. And one of the ways in which the study, number one study results were discussed, at least in social media, was that maybe a ketogenic diet could be used like altitude training that even though it, when you're on it impairs performance of high-intensity exercise, that maybe when you've finished and go back to your higher-carbohydrate diet and have um, a taper, that everything comes together physiologically. You've got a legacy from the adaptation that occurred while you're on the ketogenic diet. And then when you freshen up and go back onto the high-carbohydrate diet, it leads to an integrated better performance. So in study two, we um, completely replicated study one, but then we continued for another three weeks after the, the exposure to the ketogenic diet and we observed what happened to performance when there was that taper and um, restoration of carbohydrate availability looking to see if that led to better performance than simply having trained with a high-carbohydrate approach for the whole of the six weeks. And what we found in the second study, which um, is in review for publication, is that there was um, no sign of any extra benefit to performance. We, we saw again that the ketogenic diet, when you're on it, impairs high-intensity endurance performance, but then when you go back onto the high-carbohydrate diet, it doesn't leave you with any kind of a benefit like that altitude idea. So there's, in our hands at least, um, no benefit from, from being on the, the high-carbohydrate, also the, the high-fat diet as a prelude to the competition preparation. Did those athletes bounce back to baseline after getting back onto the carb high-carbohydrate diet or was there still yes, an impairment after? Yeah, but, yes, it, it's an interesting way to um, to look at that because we had to compare it. When you're looking at a 10,000-metre race and then a, a 20K performance, um, it's not a straight comparison. So we looked at it in two ways. One, just mathematically saying that 10,000 metres is half of 20K and so what would you expect just by normalising the data? And when we looked at it from that point of view, it didn't look like the athletes had bounced back completely. Um, they seemed to have not, or at least they they performed just as well in the 20K race as they had come into the camp six weeks previously, whereas the group that had been training with the high-carbohydrate diet actually had an improvement over their first race. So when we looked at that analysis, it looked like they'd actually had an impairment of the experience. They'd basically been there for six weeks and hadn't benefited from it. Um, the other way that we looked at it was to use the IAAF point score. So the IAAF um, has a way of being able to look across all the events on its program so that you can compare someone high jumping with someone doing a javelin and say which one performed better against the world standards. And when we use that way of... Um, analysing the data, we saw that both groups um, competed equally well in the 20K race. So different ways of looking at it, but certainly there was no evidence that the ketogenic diet had given any sort of background benefit or legacy. And, and in this second study, did you have only the, the high carbohydrate and the ketogenic groups, or did you also have the, the third group, the, the carbohydrate periodization group, like in the first yes. study? Yeah, we had um, we had the three groups, um, and the three groups were um, 
looked at separately when we looked at the 10 or 10,000 metre race pre and post that intervention. Um, and again, we saw the same results that the periodised diet was better than the ketogenic diet, but didn't seem to be as good as the high carbohydrate availability all the time. Um, so that was um, confirming the, the results of the first study. But we pulled those two groups together when it came to the 20K race so that we said they'd all had a high carbohydrate or carbohydrate supported training. So we compared that whole group with the, the ketogenic diet group. Um, so that's probably a good thing to jump into there and say, well, why don't we think that our periodised approach to training support was as good as the um, high carbohydrate availability all the time? Because as scientists, we now think that actually being smarter about training and having a different kind of nutritional approach to each session that you do is more sophisticated than just having carbohydrate going in every session and, you know, creating high high fuel availability the whole time. So um, it was, as I said, there was just a trend to the high carbohydrate availability being superior, but um, even so, it was a trend in the opposite direction to what we as scientists think might be the best approach. And so the way that we've explained that is to say, well, these are really high volume, high intensity um elite athletes and their training was so intense and had such a high workload involved that even when we were trying to provide a high carbohydrate availability diet um, just the fact that they're tra training so hard means that sessions do become low carbohydrate availability despite what you eat and for example we would have some of our um, athletes would do a, a 40k session in the morning of walking and then they'd walk a 10k session in the afternoon and that kind of a training volume would mean that it doesn't matter what you ate between the session in the morning and the session in the afternoon the one in the afternoon was always low carbohydrate availability just because there's not a chance to replace glycogen in that time frame when you've done such a heavy session in the morning so it, it might be that even our high carbohydrate availability diet was actually periodized because of the way the athletes trained and you know, perhaps the fact that um, they didn't become as fatigued because there weren't so many um, extra low-carbohydrate availability sessions that we achieved through the dietary means, perhaps um, they were just fresher. And if we'd put a taper at the end of this three block or three weeks of training, maybe there might have been a conversion to, to better performance at the end of it. But um, it, it, it's an interesting thing sometimes that you see when you work with elite athletes, that the way that they train has already um, made use of some of the things we're just explaining now with, with science. So, you know, you sometimes say to yourself, well, why do athletes train so hard? You know, why, why do they do such over-volume or high-intensity work when they're in, um, in competition preparation? And it might be just because people have, by accident or coaches have by accident over the over the years found that if you do this high volume and high intensity training and you do two sessions in a day, that creates the low carbohydrate availability environment that creates the extra adaptation that builds the, the mitochondria and the ability to um to oxidize um, well. So maybe 
coaches have achieved it through training and we can do it in other ways through diet and explain the mechanisms underpinning it but sometimes we mightn't be able to improve much on what the coach already knew yeah no that that's a, a reasonable explanation and is this something that you tested because you mentioned that you've more recently been working with energy availability uh, as well so so is that something that you've been doing in the more recent studies yes so um we we're um midway through data collection for that um we would have liked to have finished that project this year um we had um a camp in 2018 where we collected um sorry 2019 where we collected a data set but we needed to build on the power of that um by adding more subjects in our 2020 study but unfortunately the um the bushfires in Canberra in January this year meant that when the athletes arrived for our camp um we were closed down we had to evacuate to Melbourne and create an, another study a smaller study where we couldn't do all the work that we had planned to do just because we just didn't have the facilities um out of our own environment so um and now we're in you know lockdown with the coronavirus so it might be another year before we get a chance to um get everybody back together and all those resources assembled so that we can finish the story but what we were trying to do in this this study was this time compare um or two things what we're looking at the effect of low energy availability on changes in in um, hormones and different aspects of body health but also the effect on performance and part of um part of the reason for putting the low energy availability story into the picture was because we're interested in it as an issue for athletic performance but we're also thinking about with the ketogenic diet where you have a low carbohydrate environment but high energy availability can we use that as a way of being able to look at the effect of low energy availability in some of the athletic populations where we see problems because if you think about a low energy availability scenario athletes are getting low intakes of carbohydrate compared to their needs as well as the low energy availability so we're not sure whether some of the features of low energy availability could be just carbohydrate restriction or whether it's energy per se so our protocols had a comparison between a high energy high carbohydrate diet uh ketogenic diets which is high energy but low carbohydrate and then we've got the low energy which is low energy plus low carbohydrate so we were hoping that by putting those three things in in comparison we'd be able to see the effects of the lower energy availability but also be able to tease out how much of that was due to the carbohydrate restriction and how much was due to the energy restriction right yeah but results depending on that one then and nothing nothing that we can really discuss anymore at this point is that correct um yes but one of the things we we did see which was of interest was um in terms of performance we had so this this was a a shorter study we um wanted to move away from the three three and a half week intervention with the ketogenic diet and we found that when we did it over a six or seven day period which was sufficient we thought to have the effect of low energy availability being apparent but it also gave us a chance to see how quickly the muscle can retool with the ketogenic diet to be able to be better at fat burning um and that that is um of interest to us because we got a lot of criticism 
for our early two studies with people telling us that three and a half weeks isn't long enough to be on a ketogenic diet to get all the benefits from it. And, I mean, I'm, I'm quite happy to um, to accept that there's a lot of different things that might be happening in the body in response to the ketogenic diet, but if the interest is around the muscle retooling to be able to burn fat, well, then we found with our most recent study that it doesn't take three and a half weeks, it doesn't take six months, but it can be done in about six days. That That's the, the time course of the muscle being able to adapt, to retool, to be good at fat burning. And we found very high rates of fat oxidation, up to a, a one and a half grams per minute, that were achieved in, in six days of a ketogenic diet and also found in our other studies after three and a half weeks of the ketogenic diet. And they're exactly the same rates that have been found in some of the studies that have looked at people that have been on ketogenic diets for six months or two years. So there may be other adaptations that occur with the ketogenic diet, but if the one that you're most interested in is the ability to burn fat as an exercise fuel, well, then it doesn't take that long at all. Mm, yeah, that's that's very interesting to hear. And speaking of that, the some criticism that the study got and where it sits in terms of uh, related to other studies, uh, I think that uh, that's something that we could talk about with the, the results that you've had about both how the ketogenic diet compares to the high-carb diet, but also the periodized carbohydrate diet. What do you think is the consensus at this point in the scientific community based on the research about these three different ways of of doing your nutrition, so to say, based on all the available literature out there? Yes. So um, we based our first study in um, 2015 on the original study by Steve Finney in 1983, which had looked at four weeks, and we had a a three-and-a-half-week block available to us, which we felt would replicate that first study. And, you know, we, we went into it thinking that we were openly trying to see if ketogenic diets worked. We were, you know, really interested to see if it did offer an opportunity to athletes that they weren't currently using. And we um, chose that period because we had seen it previously being done like that and the only other information that was available were books that were being written by people opposing the, the ketogenic diets and they were all writing in the books that it was taking two or three weeks to occur. So we felt that we were giving it an adequate period of time but by the time you know we did the study and published it, um, suddenly social media was alive with this idea that you needed to go for 12 weeks or six months or much longer. And we received quite a bit of trolling and criticism on social media saying that we deliberately set up the study to fail by choosing a three-and-a-half-week period of um, exposure. So that was a bit unfortunate that, you know, we'd gone into it, we felt, with without bias and genuine interest in seeing if this was a... Um, an opportunity for athletes to get performance advantages in a different way. But, um, you know, we've we've sort of um, got caught up in the diet wars that now seem to exist where people are very black and white in the way they they want to see nutrition. Um, So looking at other studies that are available apart from ours to see is there any evidence that there's a time course that's different, it's very difficult to... um, to, to, to make those decisions because the studies that have done good control over the dietary interventions have really been done over four weeks and there's not a lot. There's about five studies and they all show that there's um, indications of the change to the 
fat utilisation in the muscle within that period of time and that the fatigue that's associated with the um, early exposure to a ketogenic diets disappeared by that stage. So we all agree that by that period there's there's quite substantial metabolic changes and then we're really left with looking at what happens to people who've been on the diet for several years in a cross-sectional approach rather than an interventional approach to get any more clues. And so there's two studies that have taken athletes that have been on these diets for, you know, six months and more through their own volition. So there's no control over how they did it or why they did it or whether they self-selected, whether, you know, they're part of a community where 100 people started it and only 20 people survived because there's such an individual responsiveness to it. But be that as it may, when when those groups of long long term adhering um, ketogenic diet athletes are then compared to a, a control group of, of athletes who are similar in their training and their their um, performance characteristics, but on higher carbohydrate diets, well, the two studies um, have contrasting views. One of them would suggest that there's nothing special about what happens to metabolism being on the diet for longer. And the second study suggests that there is something different. The second study um, suggests that after some period of time, the athlete's able to adapt and actually stores glycogen just as readily as if they're on a high-carbohydrate diet. But um, I think the data in that study have got some problems um, if you look at them closely. And so I think it's not sufficient evidence to make a, a complete new hypothesis about what happens with long-term um, ketogenic diet just based on that. Um, and then there's a couple of other studies that we could look at where long-term athletes have done this, these just sort of case studies, but in some of these case studies you do see evidence that when these athletes um, reintroduce some carbohydrate into their diet, whether it's just around some training sessions or a race, that there are some advantages to being able to have carbohydrate as a fuel. And so it would suggest that there's you know, more interest or more complexity to the story than we're currently giving credit for it. And when you listen to the anecdotes of some of those successful athletes who um, like to um, see themselves as, as ketogenic diet followers, you often find that in real life, they do periodise that they have periods where they're on ketogenic diet all the time, but then they have times when they introduce more carbohydrates in the higher quality training sessions or races in this sort of attempt to get the best of both worlds from fuel stores. So it'd be lovely to be able to do that controlled study for two years and actually make sure that you're watching everything in the time course and doing it in a very rigorous way. But um, I don't think any of us would have the money or the patience or the athlete contacts to be able to um, to do the ideal study for that long yeah and and the case studies are obviously very uh, difficult to interpret because you can't be your own control if you're uh, if you're somebody who has been on a long-term ketogenic diet even if you are somebody who is uh, who, who is follow whether you're following that or you're periodizing but you don't know what the results would have been on any of the other approaches like a constant high carb or just periodized approach you maybe you can have success on one but you might have had even more success on on another so difficult to draw conclusions from from those for sure and absolutely and look, I, 
I think it brings up two points. I think that there are individual responses to these kinds of diets and that you know, what athletes and coaches need to do well is to experiment to find what works for them. But I, I think the other thing that's um, important is that there's um, you need to think about your event in terms of the personal characteristics that it has and that you know when athletes say to me, oh, you're anti-keto, I say, no, that's not true at all. What I'm just saying is that when we look at what the ketogenic can, diet can do or what kind of performance that it's suited to, it doesn't really work across the kinds of athletes and events that I work with in that are on the Olympic program or more traditional. And so if you're thinking about doing an audit of your event of what's going to limit success is that your ability to have a high gear a high intensity gear or an ability to be able to either throughout the event or at critical moments in the event work at higher intensities for sustained periods is that the limit to success or is it running out of glycogen as a fuel and not having the availability of of another fuel source to take up the slack and so if you look at your event and say, well, how long is it? What's the fuel cost? What are my opportunities to take in extra carbs on board during the race? Is it important for me to have um, the ability to burn them at high intensity? Well, then you can work out whether you're more suited to a carbohydrate-supported approach or whether the ketogenic diet might be more suitable. So it's not one or the other. It's understanding what are the needs of your event and what's the best way for you to approach it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, about the carbohydrate periodization. So you said that you kind of really expected it to work and it makes sense for it to work, but yet you didn't see the results. Uh, but is that something that uh, has been looked at a lot in uh, different studies uh, across the research world? And what would the cons consensus be on carbohydrate periodization? Look, I, I think it, it definitely works. It's just how do you achieve it and apply it. And in the studies that we did, um, I think the training volume swamped the ability of the carbohydrate periodization to show up its effects. But when we've worked in other studies with some um, lower-level athletes, um, we collaborated with um, Lorianne Marquet from um, INSEP in Paris, and we did some studies looking at lower-level triathletes and cyclists. In that group, when the training volume was lower, the carbohydrate periodization did have an effect. And so I think it's all about the calibre of athlete you're working with and, and the volume of training that they're doing. If we went longer with some of the elite athletes, we may find that there's ways in which the periodization of carbohydrate does have an effect, but it's more subtle because it's being added on top of the, the big changes that training drives, whereas in recreational level athletes, they, they train less and less intensely. Um, the carbohydrate periodization has more of an opportunity to have its effect being apparent. Yeah, that makes sense. And that brings us to uh, an important question. What would you say are the take-home messages on these topics for, let's start with just the normal recreational athletes that train at a more moderate volume, and then we'll go into the elite athletes at high volumes and high intensities after that? Yeah, so look, I think the really important thing for every athlete, regardless of their calibre, is to say, what is my event about and what do I need to be able to do to to perform well? And we need to look at events really carefully and individually because um, you and I could do the same thing. I mean, I can, I can run a marathon, that's what I like to do, 
Um, but when I run a marathon, it's a completely different event to Elliot Kipchoge's marathon because he can complete his marathon in two hours at much higher intensity than I can sustain. I'm doing a three-and-a-half-hour marathon and there are other people in the event that are doing five-hour marathons. And so even though we're doing the same event, if you like, it's a different challenge for each of us and we'll also have different opportunities in that event. So when Elliot does his race, he's got aid stations set out and he's got special fluids there and he's got access to them and everything's you know specially organised for him to get the best. When I do mine... It's potluck when I get to an aid station if I can get myself to the line to get what's there and I might get a cup that's only half full instead of full, you know, full. So um, there are so many different nuances that make my event different to his, even though technically it's the same race. And so if we understand what our race is about from our point of view and then think about what we need to be able to do to work well, for me, it's being able to run at a constant pace that's probably around 70% of my VO2 max for three and a half hours. I need to be able to take in carbohydrate and fluid on board as I go, and I need to find ways in which I can kind of trust that the environment's going to provide me with what I want or for me to carry it with me to make sure I can kind of smooth out the times when it's not available so that's different to Elliot who's going to need to be able to run at a much higher intensity he's going to try and take in as much carbohydrate as he can he's going to have to train his gut to be able to absorb it and he's also going to probably um, not so much for a, a, a world record attempt which they really pace as evenly as possible but in, in some of the big city marathons where you might be doing a, a competitive race you know, you might have to build in um, extra strategies being able to, to break away. You know, you may want to um, put surges into your race to, to break the, the wheel and the, the, the pack around you so that you can make your tactical approaches. You might have to look at very hot weather events if you're going to do Tokyo, for example. And so when you're thinking about that event, you have to really drill down to what's it going to mean on the day for me to be able to do what I need to do and how can I build that into my training program so I've got the right preparation for it. And so then the program in training gets broken down into all the different kinds of sessions and all the different kinds of nutritional strategies that you'd arrange around those sessions to get the best out of it. If you're the five-hour marathon runner, you might be just wanting to finish and so your kind of training is going to be completely different again. You're happy just to do long, slow stuff and just get those miles and the fatigue resistance in your legs and just to learn how to stomach um, some fluid and some carbohydrate at a much lower rate and probably spread out um, compared to Elliot and me. And, you know, that's the kind of training that you need to be doing. So, you know, sometimes... Sometimes we don't recognise that there's such differences, whether it's based on the person or whether it's based on the particular course and the environmental characteristics of the day that really should govern the way that we're preparing for it. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And I think the Ironman is a perfect example of that, where you, on a fast Ironman course, you might have the pros go at close to seven and a half hours and then you have still the, the time limit being... 15 16 or 17 hours so you have plenty of athletes coming in at that 200 percent of the time of the 
of the winning pro. So it's a completely different event, of course. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's even more of a disparity. Yeah. So uh, what about the uh, kind of the the 80-20 uh, sort of general nutrition tips, not just about the, the things that we've been talking about here, but uh, especially for recreational uh, athletes, what would you say are the most important things to take into consideration regarding their nutrition, whether you're talking about it's up to you to choose the most important points in your opinion for both for either or day-to-day and race nutrition? Yeah, look, and I think in this time of um, our self-isolation, it, it's even more important to understand why we eat what we eat. And, yes, part of why we eat is to meet nutritional goals and they may be more specialised when it comes to athletic performance. But there's so many other things that food does for us. It's part of ritual. It's part of social um, experience of sharing. It's part of enjoyment and pleasure. Um, It's part of just, you know, being able to identify with our tribe, if you like. You know, we all like to take Instagram photos of what we eat. And so... If you're wanting to be a a normal human being that gets a lot out of food, you know, gets the whole range of experiences and pleasure and benefits out of eating, then you need to be able to balance up all those different factors so that, yes, some of the time that you eat might be driven completely by nutritional goals and it might be sort of fairly cutthroat and saying, well, I don't care what everyone else is doing. This is what I need to eat for my training today or my nutrition goals. But there are other times when you eat where it's all about, look, I just want to be with a group and all be doing the same thing and having fun or I want to eat something that makes me feel good or, you know, I want to eat something that I can Instagram and be part of the pack. (laughs) And so the 80-20 rule is kind of a, a good idea in saying that there needs to be some flexibility in your diet somewhere so that different aspects of what food does for you can all be expressed it's not all just about i've got to eat this much carb and this much calories and this much iron or whatever sometimes it needs to be about i just want to hang out with my people and have something that we're all eating and enjoying and it's um adding another sort of value to my life and i don't want to put words in your mouth but uh, is that something that you see that elite athletes do well they have that flexibility they're not too rigid with how how they eat Look, I think the best elite athletes uh, do that. Um, Sometimes we get athletes who are so rigid in their thinking about nutrition that it's all very technical and and very um, driven by nutrient needs. They're they're, um, often moving too much in the same direction. But if we can get the balance right so that everything can get met at the same time, I think that's a, a much better athlete approach right sorry yeah that makes sense and uh, then uh, one final question before we go into the rapid fire questions you brought up the social media uh, trolling that uh, you've uh, had for some of those studies Uh, i think that uh, one thing that comes up in particular when it comes to nutrition because it kind of really polarizes people in a way and uh, this also affects science and the, the research world what are some points and one thing that i by the way really like about your studies is that you have those performance outcomes so it's very clear what you're actually measuring and not some indirect marker of performance that we don't really know whether or not it will translate or how it will translate to actual performance so that's something that uh, that i would 
or like to see more in research that actually more measurements of perform direct performance outcomes but what would you think what would you want to change in the uh, general nutrition sciences if if you could to make it a a better playing field with uh, good research methods good reporting and uh, and yeah that it, just general improvement for the re- the nutrition sciences I, I think what you said about having the measurement of, of what's really important, which could be performance, it could be other aspects, but getting to direct measurements is important. Um, but I think interpreting that we can allow for differences in responsiveness to things or allow that there's not one single goal that people have that we often need to think about different goals being able to be met. And so there'll never be a black and white of this is the perfect diet or this is the imperfect diet i think if we can understand that a, a mix and match of different ideas and that might change over time for the same individual but might be different between different athletes is likely to be closer to the truth yeah that makes sense and for athletes and coaches that are interested in reading the research and interpreting it for themselves or for the athletes that they coach do you have some tips for how to make correct interpretations and make the most use of of actually consuming the science that is out there? Um, well, I think being able to read widely and, and to follow um, experts is important, but then sometimes going to actually see the professional, the, the dietitian or other nutritionist that can help you to gain from the general body of knowledge what works for you is important. And that, you know, sometimes it's it's good to be able to read generally, but having it being able to be tailor-made for you is, is part of what could be the, the final element that makes it work. Perfect. So let's move into the rapid-fire questions, and these ones are short and sweet, one sentence to answer them. And the first question is, what's your favourite book, blog, or resource related to uh, nutrition or research or endurance sports? Oh, gosh. Well, look, I, I love a couple of different things. I'm a, a big Alex Hutchinson fan and um, David Epstein, but I also really love the Science of Sport website that Ross Tucker does. So between all those three, I can find something I love. And what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, just keep at things, I think. Just, you know, persevere. And if you can keep applying yourself and be willing to be flexible and change your ideas over the time, then that's success. And finally, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career? I think I really value the experiences of athletes and coaches now in a way that I didn't know earlier. I probably would have suggested that scientists knew more than athletes and coaches at the beginning, but now I recognise that all of us can contribute knowledge and when we put it all together, it's a a much richer source of evidence. Great. And uh, finally, where can the listeners follow you and your work and keep up to date with, uh, with what you've got going on? Uh, well, I publish quite a bit, um, so you can go to PubMed or you can look at the Australian Institute of Sport website and see some of our work there. And I am on Twitter um, with a love-hate relationship, so I often try and get there to um, promote some of the good work that we've done, but then have to retreat when it gets too mean and nasty. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll ha- we'll have that linked in the show notes anyway. And uh, listeners, be be kind on Twitter. Uh, there's no need for trolling. <laughs> Thank you, so, thank you so much, Lise, for uh, coming on the podcast. It's uh, been—I've uh, really wanted to talk with you a long time because I really admire the the work that you've done. So it's a great pleasure to talk with you. Oh, thank you very much. It's great when we've got um, people that want to share it. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As usual, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com, and uh, on the show notes page, I'll link to. Lots of the papers that we discussed here today and uh, papers relevant to the discussion that Luis has been involved in. And also as related listening, I highly recommend that you go and listen to episode 181 of that triathlon show if you haven't already, which is the interview I did with Professor John Hawley, who is uh, Luis's husband. And uh, in that episode, we discussed endurance sports nutrition state of the art in 2019 and that is one of the most downloaded episodes that uh, the podcast has and uh, john was a great guest so definitely go and check that out as well if you're interested in either individualized coaching customized training plans or ready-made training plans depending on your race distance and goals go and check out scientifictriathlon.com we have uh, all of those uh, services and products available so you can find more information through the website and send me an email if you have any questions big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and get 15 percent off your order with the promo code that triathlon show one five and big thanks to roca that you can find on roca.com Go and have a look at their new and uh, fantastic new wetsuits, the uh, Maverick uh, X2 and the Maverick MX. And you can get 20% off your order on those wetsuits or any of their other products like tri suits, windscreens, goggles, high performance eyewear with the promo code that you can find on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving trap.